tonight will be a live session. <laughs> Whew, yeah. Yeah, you think it was hard on you. How would you like to be the guy standing up here doing that and pretending like y'all were out there? Because <laughs> that's not very easy. I found that out. I had to use my imagination that the room was full of people. And usually when I was doing those tapings, I would assume it was a record crowd. <laughs> and it's just me. Just me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for laughter. We thank you for the body of Christ. We don't have to do any of this by ourselves. Now, the road's sometimes hard, and sometimes there's uh, much opposition. But you are faithful. You are good. You are true. Your promise still stands that those who hold on to you, your name, believe that you are who you say you are. You will bless us beyond measure. So tonight we open this book, this word, your word. And I pray, Father, that you give us minds to understand, that you give us hearts to receive, and you'd give us the, how, the power of the Holy Spirit to live out loud what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to have our first chance to open up Second Timothy. Um, so I want to do something to bridge two books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. I want to give us some perspective and context. It looks like the Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy about 63 AD. And four to five years later, he writes the second letter, 2 Timothy. Paul wrote 2 Timothy from a dark and damp Roman prison cell just before he died in 67 AD. Let me give you a little history just to give us context. The Roman emperor Nero had been slowly descending into madness since his ascent to the throne in AD 54, a process exacerbated by the great fire of Rome in AD 64 that burned half of the city of Rome. With the residents of Rome in an uproar, Christians became a convenient target for Nero. So if you go back and read history, that's when he would set them on fire. He would cover them in pitch and set them on fire. Um, some was he just hated them. And number two, it was his way to try to uh, get blame off of himself onto other people why that fire had destroyed so much of Rome. Paul was one caught up in the persecution by this Nero. And eventually he was beheaded by the Roman officials soon. We're not sure exactly how much later after he wrote what we know, 2 Timothy. I'm going to attempt to link the two letters as we open up the second one. I want you to do something. I want you to think of the two letters as kind of a continuation of the same story, even though there is a time gap. Yes, there may be five years between their writings. Paul's circumstances are even more severe in the second letter than the first letter. But I want to read them as if they're a continuation. Here's why. <clears throat> Ultimately for us today, it's a teaching. And the teaching is timeless. So whether there was a five-year gap or a hundred-year gap, the teaching itself is timeless. So we'll begin with Paul's final instructions to Timothy, to the church. So to make this link, I'm going to go back to his final instruction to the church in 1 Timothy, 
and we'll use that as the platform to jump off into the first verses of 2 Timothy. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6.11. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. Well, what an incredible thing. For, how would you like for Paul to say that to you? You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. So run. Run from all these evil things. Now, I want, throughout tonight, I'm going to focus on this first section. <clears throat> You're a man of God. So that means there's some things connected to that. Run from evil. Oh, man of God, run from evil things. Why? Because you won't remain a man of God if you don't run from these evil things. So here's his instruction. And then here comes where I'm going to hit this multiple times tonight. Oh, man of God, run from evil things. And while you're running, what are you running toward? Pursue righteousness. Run toward that which is right. Pursue it. Righteousness doesn't come naturally. You'll have to intentionally pursue righteousness. No one just naturally does what is right. You'll have to pursue it. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then he's using a word, fight, run, fight. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. Look at the words that are used, at least translated in English. Run, fight, pursue righteousness, hold tight. Does this sound passive to you? Does this sound like the Christian life is a setback and let's just take it easy life? No. We're in a battle. If I could do one thing in the modern American church, it would be to convince you that we are in an all-out life and death, heaven and hell, spiritual war, and people around us are dying. And the church seems so passive to me. Whatever. Does this sound like a whatever moment? Can you see, I'm going to ask all of you a question, just kind of set the stage tonight. How many of you, I wonder, see the spiritual war today? I know that the Americans are struggling with this because we've never been exposed to this. People in the rest of the world, they've lived most of their lives in this spiritual battle. But here, we've gotten so soft, we wouldn't know what a battle was if we saw it. Just uh, this past week, I was reading a news story in this Beto O'Rourke, which I don't know much about him. He's a, a, a legislator or something from Texas running for president. And he was being interviewed, and they asked him a question, do you believe that any church or any organization that refuses to conduct a gay marriage should lose their tax-exempt status? And his answer was, yes. And the crowd around him cheered, cheered. Now think about that for a moment. In other words, unless this church, this is personalized, you think unless this church started doing gay weddings, Unless we, unless we throw this thing out and start doing gay weddings, the church will become a taxable, we'd lose our non-tax, our tax-exempt status. And his, his whole idea is, let's use that bar to lever the church into compliance with our version of righteousness. Well, I can tell you, this is a spiritual war. Whether it happens in this election cycle or one in the future, eventually this has come. 
It's coming. Well, I can tell you right now, if that happens here, I guess we'll just lose our tax status. You know, it's not about, can you buy us off? Is that it? You, you know, we're going to buy you off? It'll be about money? No, it won't be about money. Because it's not about money. So when you look at Paul's writing to this Timothy, to this church, he's using battle terms. Run, fight, pursue righteousness, hold tight. This is not passive. This is life and death. This is not just fatherly advice from a friend, but a command of God through an apostolic minister. Listen, this is a command of God. And if you think this command's only for Timothy, you'd be wrong. Let me go to the next verse, verse 13. And I charge you. This, this, this guy who's saying that has the Holy Spirit inside of him, a special dose of the Holy Spirit because he's encountered Christ. And, and he's been commissioned to the Gentile world. And here's what he says. I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without wavering. What what was the foundation of that command? Pursue righteousness. And you hang on and you fight. You fight. Because there's a battle. I I, I command that you obey this without wavering. Then, then, what happens if, if, you, if you take this serious? Then, no one can find fault with you from now on until when? When do you get to stop fighting? Until the Lord Jesus comes again. When he comes and gets you, you can take a breath. This command, this challenge to the church, motivates us to perseverance. Motivates us to endurance. You've got to hang on. Why? You've got to hang on to what? If you're pursuing righteousness, you're going in a certain direction. You're, you're pursuing something that's out in front of you. What is it that's in front of us? We believe that the Word of God calls us toward Him. So we're in the pursuit of the Word of God, which is doing what is right according to the Word of God. Why? Because of a very great reward at the end of this race. And not everyone goes to heaven. There is a very great reward at the end of this race, and not everyone gets the reward. Are you hearing me? Not everyone gets the reward. I know that's not very popular today. Not everyone gets the very great reward. 1 Timothy 6.15, for at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. I want you to focus on that sentence. He alone. There's a singular context. He alone can never die. And he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. Talking about God the Father. He alone can never die. He is not subject to death. God the Father is not subject to death. He alone cannot die. And he lives in an unapproachable light. No human eye has ever seen him. We're talking about God the Father. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will see him. All human, excuse me, all honor and power to him forever. No human eye, human eye in this flesh, you cannot see him. 
in this flesh. You cannot approach him. He lives in an unapproachable life. We're talking about God the Father. You ever wonder why the Apostle Paul says, for this present body cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Why? Because this flesh cannot come into his presence. We would be consumed by his glory. Let me give you, let me put that in perspective. For years, I read the, the, New, the Old Testament where, where Adam and Eve sinned and God took Adam and Eve and he, he removed them from the garden and he put up this flaming sword at the eastern gate of the Garden of Eden. It's kind of a crushing story that here, man and woman, we, we had this fellowship with God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. They felt no shame, no guilt. I mean, what a relationship. But then sin moved them on the outside. They, they lost their ability to, to have fellowship with God. Now, in my mind for a lot of years, I saw that as punishment, and I saw it as kind of harsh. And then I came to a simple conclusion. That was the greatest blessing he gave them. You know why? Because if he, they'd have stayed there, they would have died. Do you understand? Because their human body had taken, had been corrupted by sin. And he is absolute holiness. So he removes them. I want you to visualize. He removes them from his divine presence so that his divine presence doesn't destroy them. Because now they're sin. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Cannot inherit, what's the kingdom of heaven? It's not a geographical location. It's wherever he's at is the kingdom of heaven. And you won't be able to be where he's at in a flesh that has sin. I can spend the rest of this service on verse 15 and 16. I'm going to try not to. Jesus' first coming was just at the right time. Notice what it says here. At, go back up to verse 15. For at just the right time, just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and almighty God. His first coming was just at the right time. And I can tell you his second coming will be just at the right time. Notice the title and position at his revealing. What is his, what, how's he announced when he comes at just the right time, the second time? Was he king of kings and lord of lords the first time? No, he was a suffering servant. He was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. What about this next time? What, what about the next time? King of all kings. Now, I want you to notice what that says. King of kings, lord of lords. Some translations say king of all kings, lord of all lords. What I want you to get is there will be kings on the earth when he comes. And there will be lords or, or human royalty, human uh, power figures on the earth when he comes. And, and he will be over them and they will bow down to him. He's, he's not going to just come as a king and there's no subjects. He's going to come as a king and there will be kings. And he'll come as a lord and there will be lords. But he'll be the king of all the kings and the lord of all the lords. And the Bible says that many of the kings and the lords and the rich and the powerful will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the one who is the king of kings. They will be terrified of him. The son will come and his coming gives ultimate glory to the father. Understand something. 
In this context, we see both Jesus the Son and God the Father, right? Stay with me. We're seeing two individuals, Jesus the Son, God the Father. His coming, Jesus' coming, gives ultimate glory to the Father who alone can never die. You see, Jesus was in an earthly body, subjected himself to death. He subjected himself to a human body, which subjected himself to death itself. The Father, Paul says, the Father lives in a brilliant and unapproachable light. So let's think about this for a moment. When Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he reveals something about the Father. He says that God is spirit. Let that sink in. Jesus is talking about his Father. Jesus is flesh, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. He says, we know Jesus he is, but, but what about the Father? He says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him how? How? You know what it is. We worship him in spirit. He's a spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. There's two ways to worship him. In spirit, and in other words, you have to do it acknowledging that He's not a man. God's not a man. His son was fully man. But in this case, his application is he's, he is spirit. He is an unapproachable light. Human flesh can't look at him. So how do we get to him? To the, through the son. He has never been seen by humans. Now, I know that somebody's going to say, well, wait, wait a minute. Now, listen. He has never been seen by humans, nor will he ever be seen by humans in this current form. In this current form. There is a day that something's going to change about humans. For flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. But we will all be changed. Right? We'll be changed. So the form that we're going to take on when we are taken up in the resurrection will not be the form that cannot see him, but it will be a form that can finally approach him, can finally see him. The NIV translates that verse like this, who alone is immortal, how about God the Father, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see or will see. Not in the flesh. So I want you to get this picture of God the Father. And there's a reason I'll show you in a minute. Everything is created. Everything is created. Now, I know from a human perspective, that's hard for us to understand. We can't even understand the whole eternal time concept. Uh, I remember when, when uh, Audrey was a, a small child, we were taking a walk one day, and she asked me, who's God's daddy? N- not Jesus' daddy. She got that part. Jesus' father is God the father. So who's his daddy? He didn't have one. Well, how, how old is he? He's never not been. Now, how does that work? So everything that is was created. So there's a word. There's a word. There is only one that is uncreated. 
There is an uncreated one. Even Jesus, even the Son. Remember, if you were in our Hebrew study, what, what did we learn? What did we learn in Hebrews? The Word of God is true. Jesus, there was a time when, uh, before, the, before the foundation of the earth, how much before? I have no idea. Before the foundation of the earth, God the Father said, today you have become my son. Today I have become your father. I'm not saying he was created like everything else was created. I've often thought <coughs> that it's as if before the creation of the world, God took a part of himself, a part of his glory, a part of his spirit, and, and separated it into a, the form of the son, who eventually became flesh and dwelt among us. But he, he says, today you become my son. Today I've become your father. But uh, outside of the father, the son, and the spirit, outside of that, everything else it was created. You know what that means? It had a first day. It had a beginning. You had a beginning. The heavens and the earth had a beginning. Adam had a beginning. Now, I want you to know something that God tells us that the human soul had a beginning. My human soul had a beginning. He knew me before the foundations of the earth. But I had a beginning. I had a first day. <clears throat> But the human soul, I am firmly convinced, is eternal. Here's what I want to tell you. It has a beginning, but it has no end. And I want you to think of it this way. That the human soul, and let's just say this is, um, that God takes life. He is the creator. He is the singular creator. And he has life which is to create life, he is life. So he breathes life. He breathes life into a human soul. And let's just say, this is my soul. And he takes his life, puts it into my, creates me, a life force, and then I have a beginning. I have a, I have a starting point. And then he takes this life force and he pushes it out into eternity. It has no end. The question is, where will you be in that eternity? That's the question. Now, I say all of that. Everything, that is, everything is created has a beginning except God. There is only one uncreated one. Satan is a created being. Satan is not a creator. Satan cannot give life. He's a created being. He had a first day. God has no beginning and he has no end. He can give immortality. What is immortality? Uh, it is not being subject to death. He can give it to somebody. He can give immortality, but only he possesses immortality in and of himself. I cannot give you immortality. Nobody can give you immortality. Satan cannot give you immortality. Why? Because immortality means you're not subject to die, which means that you have no boundary. And the only one that cannot give you a boundary is the one that has no boundaries. No beginning and no end. Human flesh cannot approach his glory. Human flesh. <clears throat> Adam after sin. Eve after sin. Any of us in this room. We cannot approach His glory or we will die. Sin cannot approach absolute holiness. The only time God the Father 
Now, I want to make a point. The only time God the Father is mentioned fully dwelling with mankind after Eden is in the new heaven and the new earth. Are you with me? In the Bible, the only time God the Father is mentioned fully dwelling. Now, some of you will say, well, he, he, dealt, he dealt with Israel in the wilderness. Yeah, behind a veil. You know, you could only come in once a year, and you had to come in certain. And then, then you could only come in at a distance. It wasn't like I walked with him in the cool of the day in the garden moment. It's not like that. The only time God is mentioned being fully available to mankind after the garden, after he puts up the gate and says, you two got to go, is in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's read that. Revelation 22, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. Now, now, it would be so easy to read over that and get to the other part. What's that mean? There's no curse. Well, if there's no curse, there's no sin. If there's no sin, you're not in corrupted flesh anymore, are you? Something has changed. There's no longer a curse on anything for the throne of God. Everybody look. There's two. There's two thrones. For the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's two thrones. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you study the Scriptures, this is the new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And, and this is what's going to happen. Now, before that, before that, in the millennial reign of Christ, there's just Jesus. You know why? There's still corrupted flesh on the earth. But by the time this happens, by the time this happens, the new heaven and new earth, there's no more corrupted flesh. What? There's not a curse on anything. The earth's not cursed. The flesh is not cursed. There's no curse. There's, you can't find a curse. It's gone. And what, what happens? The throne of God, the Father, is on the earth. And the Lamb, there's two of them. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will be there. What? The new earth. And his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. I thought you couldn't see his face. Well, you can't before this happens. But when the curse is lifted, they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there'll be no night there. No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign. How long does this event last? Forever and ever. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. It never stops. What? This is it. Now, I go through that tonight like this. This is why we don't quit. This is why I don't sell out. This is why my faith is not for sale. This is it. Because I know what's coming. I know what's on the other side. And I'm convinced it's getting really close now. Moses saw God in the cloud of fire. But not actually face to face. It, it's, the Bible says that he talk, they talked to each other like they were talking face to face. But not actually face to face. Not like Adam was able to talk to him in the garden. God hid his glory to save Moses' life. 
He hid his glory. In fact, one of my favorite texts, and I'm sure some of you probably would say the same thing. One of my favorite texts from the Old Testament is that God comes to Moses, and he, he, I'll try to briefly say what happened. Uh, Moses, God's saying, I, I'm going to, you, you're going to, I'm going to send somebody to take you to the promised land. I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, I'm going to slay you. Because you're all messed up people. So I'm going to send somebody to take you to the promised land. And Moses is like, oh, if you ain't going with us, I ain't going. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I'd try that one. <laughs> and God was moved by the fact that Moses says, if you're not going with me, I ain't going. I ain't going without you. The only reason I'm here is you. And God was moved, and he asked Moses, just ask me for whatever you want. And Moses said, what? Show me your glory. I want to see you. Well, you've been seeing him, right? You, no, no, not like, no, I want to see you. I want to I look at you. I want to see your face. So let's look. How's God's responding? God's not angry with him. Exodus 33, Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. Let me see you. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face. Why? Why? Because I love you too much, Moses, and you're in the flesh, and I would destroy you. But you may not look directly in my flesh, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. And my glorious, as my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. I, I want you to use your, your childlike imagination because I'll I tell you what, I like to do that on these kind of scenes. I like to imagine these, these big, I've been to Israel, I've seen a lot of the, what things look like over there. I see these big giant boulder next to a big giant boulder and there's a crack between them. And Moses kind of gets down in there and God comes and puts his hand over Moses. Can you imagine God putting his hand over you? How big is his hand? I don't know. And he puts, he's not a man. He's not a man. He's spirit. So he covers Moses. I will remove, then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. But my face will not be seen. So as he passes by, he pulls his hand so that Moses can watch him depart. The glory. One day he won't have to remove his hand. Paul's closing words to Timothy in his first letter was this description, what I'm about to read of God. This is and must be the church's motivation. What I'm about to read to you, what I'm explaining tonight is why we're not going to quit. You're not going to buy us out. And it's not going to happen. Because everything else is going to pale in comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed when, not if, when Jesus comes. Here we go, verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, 
who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them. Who's supposed to tell them? The church. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and rich in gen- and be generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life when? In the future. Verse 20, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. So I want to do something. I just went through that, those few verses and I summarized what he said. Here we go. Beware of trusting in unreliable money. Instead, trust in God. So I'm, I'm going to tell you tonight, if your trust is in your 401k in that stock market, good luck. Or maybe you've got it buried in the backyard. You got a bunch of paper money buried in the backyard. Good luck. You'll probably get so old, you'll forget where you buried it. <laughs> Use your money for good. Store up treasure in heaven. This is, this is what he's telling. We're, we're commanded to teach people this. Store up treasure in heaven. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away. Be on guard. Avoid foolish arguments with smart people who have shipwrecked faith. And live in God's grace. There's his final instructions to the church. Remember, Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting his execution. Four to five years later, here we go, Second Timothy. Here comes the second letter. That's all been just the first letter. Verse 1, second letter. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out. I have been sent out. Who sent him out? Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. There is a life available, forever life available to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Such a calm letter in such a terrible circumstance. This guy's in jail. He's in prison. And he's going to die. Sounds like a, would that be the beginning of your letter if you were in chains? And they were going to execute you? Maybe that's due to the grace, mercy, and peace that he has received and that he offers to Timothy. Look at the three words, grace, mercy, peace. Grace, mercy, peace. He's got it. God has given it as a gift. Grace, mercy, peace. Paul, Paul considers his calling this. And by the way, this is the church to tell others about the life that has been promised to those who will place their faith in Christ. Can I ask everybody a sobering question? You ready? You won't like it. How many have you told? To tell others about the life that has been promised to those who will place their faith in Christ Jesus. Can I just make a simple request? 
Because I know how overwhelming that is. I get it. I do get it. Just tell one. Just do one. Quit trying to figure out how you're going to tell Lawrenceburg. Just tell one. Can you do that? And then that one will tell one. And by the way, when you get through telling that one, take a break and then go tell another. This is the good news. This is the message and purpose of the church that each one of us will tell about a life that's been promised to those who have faith in Christ. To share the good news of that life. Several years ago, I heard Wally Rendell say something, a preacher, one of my favorite preachers in this area. Wally said this, may I forever preach as a dying man to dying men. May I forever preach as a dying man to dying men. Because here's the deal. Here's the, the absolute truth reality. I'm dying. And you are too. We're all dying. And there's this illusion. There's this illusion that if I don't talk about it, it'll never happen. I will not make 120. I'm convinced. And you won't either. You won't make it. So what are we talking about tonight? What's bigger than this? Somebody will say, well, come talk to me when I'm 119. <laughs> What's bigger than this? There's nothing bigger than this. And yet there's something inside of us that wants to put off the reality called truth. Verse 3. Timothy... I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again. For I remember your tears as we parted. And I will be filled with joy when we are together again. Paul says he has a clear conscience. I will tell you what. That's the peace of God. Listen, to be forgiven and to be free. That's a clear conscience. He says he's got one. It's the peace that transcends human understanding. Peace with God, peace with self, and peace with others. I've had a lot of opportunities and phone calls and requests that I will go and talk to somebody in the hospital who has been told they're near death. And if that person is conscious and that person is of sound mind and reason and they're able to communicate, what I will 95% of the time, I will ask a simple question. Have you made peace with God? Have you made peace with God? Now, I will tell you, I've had amazing answers over the years. Some with, they don't like the question itself and some, how can I do that? Have you made peace with God? Because I'm going to tell you, ultimately, <laughs> I want to see his face. And you're not going to be able to see his face until you've made peace with him. And there is one who came to make peace between man and God. He died on a cross to tear down the hostility between man and God. He paid my debt off. So that I can make peace with God. And when I make peace with God, then I can make peace with myself. 
And that's when you see somebody who's in the deathbed and they, they're not afraid. And they're not afraid because they know that when they close their eyes in death, they will open their eyes in glory. And this thing called faith, they're sure. And they're certain that in just a moment or two, I'm going to see my Lord. You see, that's, that's peace with God. That's peace with myself. And that's peace with others. Because you can't hardly mess me up when I got those first two. Paul longs for fellowship with his brother Timothy. In this life or the life to come, I can tell you as of right now, they've, they have been able to spend some time together after his prison term. Remember, Paul is in prison and separated from his young friend. So Paul remembers Timothy with these next words, verse 5 through 7. I remember your genuine faith, Timothy, for you shared the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So, so understand something. Timothy's faith didn't come from a father. It came from his mother and his grandmother. Ladies, listen. Timothy's father was a Gentile. So he's getting his faith from his mother and his grandmother. A lot of people believe, and it's very logical, that Timothy's grandmother was one of the original converts when Paul took one of his first missionary journeys. I mean, where were Christians coming from? They were coming out of these missionary journeys. So he says, I remember your genuine faith, Timothy, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to do something. This is application in our room tonight. Fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you. You ever made a campfire? Some of my worst experiences in life is trying to make a campfire. You ever made a campfire and you get that thing kind of going and you can get some big old something that, that carries wind and you sit there and just kind of fan it and all of a sudden that fire just starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. He's telling Timothy, who is a man already full of faith, I want you to take something and fan it until it's hot, hot, hot. You know what I mean? Pursue righteousness. Pursue it. Your lifelong mission, pursue righteousness. Fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but he has given us power, love, and self-discipline. Fan this fire. Never underestimate your spiritual foundation. I look back at my childhood, and I'm going to tell you, I was a little snotty-nosed brat of a kid like most of you were. And you know what? I probably resented having to go to church all the time. And every time the doors are open, my parents drug me to church and made me go to church. And we went to VBS, and we went all the church, church, church. And now I look back and I say, oh, thank you, Mom and Daddy. Thank you, Mom and Daddy. And now we got people, and you're, I'm probably hitting some of you in the forehead right now. You got people, you, your kids, well, you don't have to go if you don't want to. Like you're loving them. 
You're not loving them. Do you understand? Do you want them to die? Do you want them to be lost? This Paul says your grandmother and mother put in you this faith. They, they led you into truth. Who's going to do it for your kids? Your grandkids. Never underestimate the power of a spiritual foundation. This is indeed the eternal legacy. I've heard people my whole life say, well, you know what? You can't take it with you, right? Talking about worldly possessions. You can't take it with you. I'm going to tell you what. There's something you can take with you. You can take your kids with you. You can take your grandkids with you. Yeah, you can. If you teach them the gospel. Proverbs 22, 6 says, direct your children onto the right path. And when they're older, they will not leave it. Oh, they may depart for a while, but there'll be some mooring. There'll be something down deep inside of them that still binds them to a truth that was, that was years before laid out. There's always something there. I remember back in my rebellious years, even when I was struggling, I just gotten out of the army and I was really struggling with, with who I was and what I was going to do with my life. And I could have went a million directions, but there was always something down inside of me that kept me tied to truth. Always knew something was true because I had been raised with that truth. Would it be easy to become fearful? When you see your spiritual father in prison awaiting execution? Because let's just put this in real personal context. Timothy's getting a letter from a guy who they're about to execute. You ever, I've read stories of prison fellowship. Chuck Colson, uh, one of my personal, I've written, I read a lot of his books back before he passed away. But um, Chuck Colson headed up prison fellowship. And I remember reading stories that you don't think about the children of people who are in prison are also in prison. It's just a different kind of prison. They go to school and they don't want to talk about their daddy. Well, who's your daddy? Well, you, my daddy's in prison. Well, we don't talk about that. And I want you to take that scene and here's young Timothy, a young preacher who's, whose greatest hero in life is now in prison. And almost like Timothy's in kind of a prison. Would you be ashamed of him being a prisoner in the Roman government? Or would you be proud of him for being a prisoner in a Roman government? You see, it would be easy to become fearful yourself. Because what if they do to me what they're doing to him? He preached the gospel and now he's arrested. And if I preach the gospel, they're going to arrest me. And you know what he said? He said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. He has given us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Fan into flames. Pursue righteousness. Preach the gospel. The spirit is actually the opposite of fear. Are you with me? The spirit is the opposite of fear. The spirit is the opposite of timidity. Philippians 2.13 it's one of my favorite verses. I, I quote it all the time when I'm afraid. For it says this, for God is working in you, 
giving you the desire and the power to please Him. There's a power inside of me. There's a Holy Spirit. There's a whole, there is, the Spirit of Christ lives inside of me, giving me the power and the desire to do what is right. But why? Because I'm afraid. Timothy, you're going to go to jail too. I'm afraid. The whole, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He didn't give you a spirit of timidity. He gave you a spirit of boldness, of power. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Do not stifle, do not quench the Holy Spirit. How would you do that? By allowing fear to quench the Spirit. Let me give you an American example. I mean, this looks so extreme. You know, we're talking about people going to prison because they follow Christ. And we've got people in the church that won't say Jesus' name because you're afraid somebody will mock you. You're not going to prison. You're afraid to say Jesus' name. What a difference between these two worlds. That's why when I did that Acts study, one of the first things that came to me when I studied the book of Acts all those weeks was that the modern American church does not look anything like the church in the first century. We don't, we don't look anything like those people. It's frightening. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Fear can stifle and quench and put out the Holy Spirit's fire. In fact, let me say this. I am convinced that fear is the enemy of faith. It is the enemy. In fact, when I, when I get into a situation where I become fearful, it is almost always when I stand at a point to where I have two options. One is to do what I'm convinced God wants me to do, and the other is to turn away because I'm afraid to do it. But it is God in me, God working in me to give me the power to turn toward Him. Instead, Paul tells Timothy and us to fan the flames, to walk in the power. And don't be ashamed of the name and don't be ashamed of the word. Don't apologize for this glorious good news. Don't apologize that Jesus Christ died to save your soul. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either. Just because I'm in prison. Don't be ashamed to tell about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison for him, with the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer for me for the sake of the good news. Be ready. Go and prepare yourself. Can I tell you something? I believe the Holy Spirit has convicted me personally to make sure that this church is capable of standing in the midst of suffering. Because I'm convinced that the Lord tarries You'll have to make a choice. We're all going to have to make a choice. Would you be embarrassed to say his name out loud in certain circles? Would you be embarrassed to say my spiritual father's in prison? Consider it an honor to suffer for this cause and the calling of Christ. So uh, let's just kind of make this personal right now. Do you think you're ready to suffer? 
And, and, and the reason, I'm going to put it in this context. Remember the night before Jesus is crucified and he's got the Last Supper and he's got all of his apostles together at the table and Jesus tells them what's about to happen. And, and Peter says, not me. I'm the man. I'll die for you. I'll die. Now, see, Peter was convinced he's ready to suffer. Right? And I think he was legitimate. I think he really thought he could take this. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked, he had to ask, to sift you as wheat. But after you have returned, you're going to fall, Peter. After you have returned, come and strengthen the brothers. Peter, you're going to fall tonight. So do you think, so let's just, I'll ask myself the same question. Do you think you're ready to stand up under the opposition? What was Peter's opposition? There was a young girl who said, you're one of them. That's it? That's it. That's it? That's it. I am not one of them. Why? Because they're, they're carrying some guy off in chains. You just took him off in chains. You're one of them. No, I'm not. It's a pretty small thing, right? Oh, you're one of them, right? At school, you're, you're one of them. You got your Bible. Oh, you're one of them. I am not. Are, would you, are, you, are you ready to suffer or sell out? Interesting question, isn't it? Verse 9. For God saved us, and he called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning, before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. He's trying to save us. We've got good news. We can look at anybody on the earth. We can look at anybody. It doesn't matter what their background is. And we say, I have the cure to death itself. Are you embarrassed about the cure to death? Most of us have been praying almost every day, several times a day for Brian Perry, our, uh, one of our ministers on staff here. And I've gone over, I was over Sunday visiting with him. And um, I go to hospitals all the time. And well, what if, what if I could walk into UK hospital and just walk down the hallway and just cure death? I go room to room, cure death, just pow, pow, pow. And I came to your room and you're dying. And I start doing this and you say, no, 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 don't bring that junk in here. Well, it cures death. Would, would, would you be embarrassed? To cure death when you're surrounded by people who are dying? See, that's what this is. It's to cure death. And it blows my mind why we're afraid to tell people who are dying how you can live forever. Do you get it? We've been commissioned with a message that overcomes the grave. 
He gives the resurrection of the dead. Even if somebody goes in the grave, they resurrect. They come back out. Verse 10. And now he has made all this plain to us. By the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death. And we're embarrassed to say his name. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of life and immortality through this good news. Death is a great power, and now one has broken the power of death. There's no man on earth that could do it, but one did it. What could be bigger than this? The pathway to eternal life has been illuminated and revealed. You can look out in the future, and there's a pathway. There's a stairway into heaven. You and I can know how all this ends. Oh, there's this thing called faith. Faith, that's it. You got to believe this, don't you? But before you can do it, you got to believe this personally. Oh, I forgot about that. Before you can give it to somebody else, you've got to receive it yourself. You can't give them what you don't have. Verse 24. And after that, the end will come. When he, Jesus, will turn the kingdom over to God the Father. Having destroyed every ruler, every authority, and every power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. You think there's going to be any death in this new heaven and new earth? It's going to be gone. No more death. That's how all this ends. The great power of death has been defeated. That's how all this ends. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. I'm done with you. Death and the grave are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. One more verse, and we'll stop for the evening. Verse 11, and God chose me. Paul says to Timothy, he's talking to us tonight, and God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the good news. What an incredible and difficult calling. Preacher, apostle, teacher. But Paul is in prison. And they're going to cut his head off, right? That's not the real question, is it? The real question is, where's Paul right now? Where's he right now? Right now. Say, I don't even have to think about this. Where's Paul right right now, today, this second? I think Paul is in the presence of our Lord right now. And I think he's waiting the resurrection of the last day in which he will return and his body that they cut the head off is going to come out of a grave somewhere over in Rome and as his soul comes behind Christ into the clouds his flesh is going to come out of the ground and be resurrected and God's going to put Paul's soul inside of eternal flesh and he will be with him in a new body forevermore no more death. And you know what? Paul says, a crown of righteousness awaits me, and not only me, but all those who long for his appearing. Do you think this thing, this resurrection, 
and this body only is for Paul? It's for everybody who will believe that he is who he says he is. The resurrection cures death 100% of the time. 100% effective. Father, we thank you for your word. What good news you have given us. I pray for your church that you'd wake us up. We have the cure to death. We have the greatest good news ever given to any man. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would set a fire inside of your bride. Put oil in our lamp and light in our lives so that we would truly become the light of the world again. We'd truly be the salt of the earth again. We'd truly be ambassadors of Christ again. Not afraid, not shrinking back. But no matter what the cost, even unto suffering, even unto death itself. May we never deny your name or your word. I pray this power upon your church in Jesus' name. And amen. Thank you all.